0: Show. The old meekie me show, yeah
1: class moments for class solidarity. Cash circulating, give the masses back its currency. Greed from elites, oligarchs, stay fed, deep state, faith fed, everybody, break bread, racism, homophobia, sexism, religion and this melted pop. living time to
0: build a new system, unionize labor rights. Highlight the issue, talking has left his
1: best. The saga continues, continues, it's the no show.
2: Hello and welcome to the Nomi Key Show. I am Nomi Key const and happy Earth Day. To everyone, we should never forget that Earth Day was invented by the great Wisconsin progressive Senator Gaylord Nelson. For Nelson, there was no daylight, no daylight, between environmental justice and social justice. There was not only no reason to balance environmentalism against jobs, there was no way to do that. Literally, if the environment goes bankrupt, Nelson liked to say, so does the economy. Or as he summed up, quote, the economy is a wholly owned subsidy subsidiary of the environment, not the other way around. He created Earth Day to bring the activism of the anti-Vietnam War movement and the civil rights movement together with the rising public concerns about the environment. Well, here we are over half a century later, and Gaylord Nelson's goal is still our goal. The Green New Deal is what Gaylord Nelson was calling for before we called it that. He was a La Follette Democrat and a New Dealer. And I am certain that if he was still with us, he would have been standing up this week with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey at this new press conference.
1: For so long,
2: our movement towards a sustainable future has been divided with really just this false notion that we have to choose between our planet and our economy. And we decided to come together in sweeping legislation that not only rejects that notion, but creates a plan.
1: We will build homes, build careers, build futures. This is our opportunity to not only retrofit our buildings, but to future-proof our workers and the planet. It is now this generation's turn to answer the call and to meet the historic challenges of our time, the era of the Green New Deal has arrived.
2: The specific news in that press conference was the expansion of the Green New Deal to include a job corps to put 1.5 million people to work on climate justice projects in communities. That is a great addition in a time when good jobs are extremely short. They're just not around. But it is also important to keep reminding corporate America and the Biden administration that as Senator Markey said, the era of the Green New Deal has arrived. No more compromise, no more incrementalism. We, cannot, we literally cannot afford it. We can, our environment can't afford it, and then we, the people of this country, cannot afford it. Gaylord Nelson started this fight 50 years ago. That is enough time to get this done. Biden started his virtual climate summit today, and that's great. It is particularly encouraging that China is attending, since there is no climate plan that will work, without the full participation of both the United States and China. But there is also no climate action plan that will work without recognizing what Gaylord Nelson tried to tell us. There is no environmental justice without social justice. There is no economic justice without climate action. The economy and the environment are not separate. They are together. The economy is, as Senator Nelson said, a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. And we cannot make one right without making them both right. So thanks to Senator Nelson and happy Earth Day to you. I hope you're able to get outside and take in, even if it's allowed, it's raining outside right now where I am, take it in. Take in the sunshine, take in the air. Appreciate this planet. We have a great show for you today. Run Chowdhury and Rep Reb are here. And when we come back, we will talk to Marisol LeBron about her new book on Puerto Rico, which is where I am right now. back so guys uh we are in our what is the 15th month 16th month since we're going into our 16th month officially of the pandemic officially and what better book to discuss the pandemic than the corona crash the effects of the pandemic how it's affected our economy what uh problems were in place that exacerbated i know that there are a lot of them it is a quick little book i read it uh in an afternoon it was a pleasure to read uh called the corona crash it is on our tns the nomi key show book club this month we have an interview that we're doing tomorrow with the author uh you definitely want to check that out if you are not a member of our book club what are you missing out on I, i i mean this is uh I've had I, I've had a little bit of time to read in the last few weeks, um, but my brain, <laughs> I, I signed up for the four books a month uh, club membership because I have to interview everybody and 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 uh, read along with everybody. But you can sign up at patreon.com slash the nomi key show. You can get one book a month and you get it in the mail. You get the book in the mail. Uh, And you also get interviews and discussions about the books that we're doing. Uh, There's also a two book club a month membership and for a few of us out there, (laughs) four books a month. um, You know, you don't have to read it on the same timeline. You can always go back and catch up. You know, I do that with podcasting. I'll listen to like 10, 12 episodes at a time and then not touch them for, you know, three months and then do it again. Uh, I did that with the Revolutions podcast, a big fan of the Revolutions podcast. And, you know, some of these revolutions have like... 75 episodes and you get really deep into the russian revolutions with the mexican revolutions and but it it takes quite a bit of time so go check it out uh we are so so excited to have a partnership with, with verso books verso books is sending us books giving us selections um that are not out yet or just out yet connecting us with their authors it's a great partnership that we've had with them over the last few months We're also uh, about to partner up with Haymarket Books as well. So Left is Best, if you want to read the best leftist books out there and you want to have a community, this is where it is. Go check us out at patreon.com slash the key Show and sign up for the book club. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Key Show. I am live, surprise to everybody. I couldn't have planned this better. I am live in San Juan right now, Puerto Rico. And who better to have on? We booked this far in advance, so I'm actually I'm very excited about this. Uh, Dr. Marisol LeBron is the author of Against Puerto Rico, Lessons from the Verano Boricua. Uh, she is the assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina, Latino Studies at the University of Austin, Texas. Uh, very grateful to have you on to talk about your book, Dr. LeBron. Thanks for joining us. And you're on mute
1: thanks Uh, it's
2: great to be here thanks for having me so i let's just uh for folks who may not be aware uh where what is verano boricua
1: yeah so the verano boricua refers to the massive protest that occurred in the summer of 2019 and all around Puerto Rico, um, but the most uh, massive were in the San Juan area. And the protests really started in response to, or were catalyzed in response to a series of leaked chats um, that were released by the Center for Investigative Journalism. Um, it's like 800 pages of these chats between uh, former Governor Pedro Joseyo and uh, top members of his administration. They were just full of all kinds of um, horrible, dismissive, dismissive derogatory language, uh, making fun of uh, hurricane victims, making fun of folks who were struggling in the aftermath of um, all of the disasters and crises that Puerto Rico has been dealing with. So in response to those chats, people took to the streets for two weeks to um, to demand that Rosillo uh, step down along with members of his cabinet.
2: Um. It-
1: Rodrigo roseo was the governor
2: under uh, while uh, Hurricane Maria happened. And he's the son of a previous governor, just to give some uh, folks some context here. But he personally while he was in the chats he this is sort of his defense i just want to put that out there he personally uh did not engage with the chats but people who are very close to him and and just to put this in context like you've you've said this in a very diplomatic way it was racist sexist homophobic he literally if they they offended every group you could possibly elderly every group you can imagine um so some people say that you know the the streets lit up uh with so many different factions because he he ticked off so many different people. Um, but it was, it didn't come from that, right? I mean, it, this is really just the culmination of, of many years of, of protests and frustrations. Can you, can you touch on sort of the lead up
1: yeah, so that's exactly the argument that I make in the book is that, you know, in a lot of ways, what the chat did was it lit the fuse on a big piece of dynamite. And so there had already been long simmering frustrations at the Puerto Rican government and in particular at the uh, colonial relationship between the U.S. and Puerto Rico that, you uh, stretch back quite a long time, but the kind of most recent lead up to this definitely has to do with the Puerto Rican debt crisis, um, and round after round after round of austerity and the effects that it's had on Puerto Ricans. And so there was a way in which Puerto Ricans have already been dealing with a kind of failed state, um, with a feeling that they are being displaced and pushed out of Puerto Rico. And then on top of that, having to deal with these, um, corrupt, inept, um, derogatory kind of um uh leader folks that were in leadership positions right and so you know really we can think about the debt crisis as creating an overall background to ricky renuncia and this feeling that um the government was not ruling in the interest of the people but definitely the effects of hurricane maria and the massive um uh, infrastructural collapse, as well as the thousands of people that died as a result of government neglect, um, were in, in many ways, what brought people out into the streets. And so the kind of most infamous, uh, thing that gets released from the chats was this exchange that happens between, um, and Christian Sobrino and a couple of other folks where they are talking about the bodies that are piling up, uh, needing to be processed at the morgue and the the need to really bury that story. And Sobrino makes a joke about feeding the bodies to uh, to crows, right? Needing to get rid of the, the bodies, needing to bury the story. And so this is really the climate where the text just uh, really illuminated for people what they already knew, which was this the government didn't care about their lives and didn't certainly didn't care about their deaths.
2: I mean it, it was so um shocking to to see it played out that way because I think you know folks You know, most voters probably think, okay, well, it's the policy decisions that are maybe racist or classist or sexist or ageist or (laughs) all the insults homophobic, but they can't necessarily be that way. It's like the George W. Bush sort of thing. I'm a compassionate conservative. My policies (laughs) suck, but at least, you know, I don't say racist things, but they did. They like explicitly say racist things behind closed doors. I I, I want to touch on a little bit, you know, he's from the statehood party. This has been a very big uh, topic in the last few weeks, uh, definitely in our show, but you know, in public, since you have two competing bills that seem to be a stalemate um, in Washington right now between the statehooders and of course, um, uh, folks who who believe in a process of self-determination, The AOC, uh, Nidia Velasquez bill. Um, So Ricky Rosell is a statehooder. Uh, He, Comes to the U.S. and he acts like a Democrat sometimes, <laughs> or did act like a Democrat sometimes. Um, these kinds of if, if these chats were to take place with a Democratic governor, pick a Democratic governor. I mean, Andrew Cuomo is probably the best example right, right now. Given the, uh, the, I mean, seriously, his crisis is bad enough. But imagine th- this is this is like 15 versions of that, right? Not caring about people dying during a pandemic and elderly. Would people be surprised? I mean, this is this is so not emblematic of what we would call the Democratic Party in the United States, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a a, a couple things, which is, you know, uh, one thing I'd say is Rosao represents a statehood party, which you know, tends to correspond towards more conservative politics in Puerto Rico, probably more aligned um, explicitly aligned with the Repo- the u s. Republican party. But definitely there's a way in which what, people felt like, as they were taking to the streets, was that like, it doesn't matter whether they were Penepe, which is the Pro Sejo Party or um, PPD, right? Like it's all the same, right? And so I think that, you know, what people were really fed up with um, was really this sense of um, both political parties really being um, so committed to maintaining A kind of um, integration into the United States as a colony, right? Or as a fully colonized space, if we're talking about kind of the complete integration absorption um, through annexation, through statehood. And so I think for a lot of people, it was really what was really interesting about the process over the summer is that they didn't necessarily have a kind of a uh, status, uh, you know, solution at the core, right? So what we really saw people talking about was really emphasizing self-determination, um, emphasizing kind of community organizing, right? The Jerez de Boyamutu, right? So mutual aid organizing, um, they had kind of surge with uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Maria really being seen as a solution to what's been the stalemate around the status question in Puerto Rico, which I think people feel like regardless of whether it's statehooders or the Commonwealth folks, the conditions continue to deteriorate for the average Puerto Rican. So I, that's one thing that I would say is that, you know, the thing that was really, I think, remarkable about the process over the summer was that really these questions became about self-determination, sovereignty, decolonization, and what it would mean to create a life-affirming future in Puerto Rico for Puerto Ricans. So that's that's one thing. The other is that was really interesting that happened as these chats were removed and as Puerto Rican the street, you know, Trump was, of course, tweeting all manner of whatever he's tweeting at the time. And, you know, people kept saying, oh, we need to do like what the Puerto Ricans are doing and like take to the streets and and get folks out. And so there's this way in which Puerto Rico really set a kind of um, example in some ways for how to um, deal with what are the kind of general abuses of the political ruling class. But I think, you know, Really, the situation in in Puerto Rico um, highlights, I think, a larger question, which is the ways in which many um, politicians don't govern for with the people. Like they don't know the people they govern, right? And so this became this huge refrain um, during the Ricky Henríquezio protest, where that not only Henríquezio, as someone who is, you know, as you mentioned, he's a son of a former governor, he's as elite as you can get, and he doesn't. Like to, to say that he understands the plight or can represent in some way what's going on in Puerto Rico is is completely divorced from reality. And so I think that you see a similar thing happening in the United States. And that, I think, is this space where we see might see synergy, right, between what the protests of the Verano Boricua highlight about political governance structures that can, I think, impact um, politics here and how to view political elites here. Um, in case we buried the lead, he stepped down. And so this was yes. the
2: story. <laughs> <laughs> how how did it go from? I mean, because, listen, like we, we've been the country has been inflamed in protests um, since Trump. I mean, before, but but really started to, to, to talk about the summer in, in Puerto Rico. The Trump administration was just like protest after protest after protest after protest but he was inflexible he did not if anything he doubled down he doubled down tripled down on law enforcement and spying and it's still continuing on um, at the state level now they're they're amping up on that but it it didn't happen like that here uh, on the island so what what was it about this moment and the pressure that really got to uh, governor Roseo
1: yeah I mean I think you know, a couple things. Which is one: the, these these uh, protests and marches were historic, just for the scale and not just the outcome, right? So the outcome, as you mentioned, right, he steps down, um, and other members of his cabinet step down. This is the first time that you know democratically elected uh, governor in Puerto Rico's history has has done so, um, and done so at the will of the public. And so this is really historic. But if we think about the two weeks that lead up to um, his his announcing his resignation. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets. So one of the biggest marches that happens a couple days before he steps down is, you know, estimated between 500,000 and a million people um, were in the streets demanding that Rosillo step down, and not only demanding that Rosillo step down, but demanding a different kind of future for for Puerto Ricans, right? And so, you know, demanding a repeal of the PROMESA Act, um, saying that the the Fiscal Control Board should step down, um, demanding greater self-determination and sovereignty demanding a decolonization process so you know the scale with which these protests occurred when we're talking about um, you know archipelago of about three million people uh is is you know you're talking about about a third of the population out in the streets so i mean i think that that needs to be said at first as like what really sets these these protests apart but i think one of the other things that we we saw during those protests which we also saw during kind of protests um, around Trump's um, uh, presidency, around, um, you know, the Muslim ban, around immigration, around, um, you know, white supremacy, is that What happened in Puerto Rico with people taking to the streets, even though there was a massive mobilization, the kind of state apparatus, repressive apparatus was huge, they mobilized. So the folks that took to the streets were really exposed, particularly those that were around the governor's mansion, um, they were there at night, were really exposed to tremendous state violence. So Kilama Trocero, which is um, a civilian kind of uh, organization in Puerto Rico arguing for police accountability and transparency, they documented dozens of incidents of um, people being shot at close range with rubber bullets. Um, We saw massive deployments of chemical irritants in Old San Juan, which is a residential neighborhood. Um, So having kind of, chemical irritants not only dispersed into the crowd, but into the general kind of um, community there. So we saw night after night, people took to the streets and night after night, the police were there um, batoning, using chemical irritants, all manner of abuse and with no kind of provocation. And so, you know, we're seeing kind of parallels where um, in these moments of massive civilian pushback, we're seeing a mobilization of a really repressive apparatus in order to squat that um dissent and to to avoid things like what happened in puerto rico right where the where the folks were successful in being able to get rocio out of office right through that massive mobilization
2: was that directed by the governor or was it the federal government
1: uh or both so in in many ways it's really was the local kind of um police apparatus as well as the local governor right we saw um different kinds of police mobilized, right? So there's like the Capitol police, but also, um, you know, San Juan municipal, as well as kind of um, general PRPD, right? Deployed. And so it, we see it though, coming from the top down. So, you know, there's a way in which people were like, you know, you have to understand the plight of these officers. They're there, you know, night after night, there's massive crowds, you know, the situations get very tense and, you know, they overreact and, you know, sure. Right. But really what we see really, I mean, at this point, I mean, really say these things, people say these things, but you know, really what we see in, in the case of the process in Puerto Rico is that it's really orders coming from the top down. So the superintendent at the time talks about like, you know, these protesters are in the street and they're threatening democracy and we're going to, Um, defend the Constitution up until the last drop of blood, right? And so really calling for the police to use violence to stop these protests and to get these protesters away from the governor's mansion um, and to clear the streets, right? And um, what happened on social media also was that we saw police rank and file that were like, it felt so good to spray, to clear the streets with, with um, pepper spray, right? And you know, they say they're more and they don't have fear, but they forgot that we have um, all of this tear gas, right? So all of these kind of things start to emerge on social media where we see that not only was there a top-down pressure onto the rank and file to deploy violence, but then also a feeling of us versus them among the police, right? They um, created these really volatile situations between civilians and police.
2: And, and and again, it was it was one third of the island that was showing up on the streets. Not to mention the diaspora in on the right. mainland um, showing up in solidarity uh, that had, had left. Um, so 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 there's a moment he, he he decides like what is like the you know the tick tock of what it takes to get a governor to step down, and 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 then we'll get to what it means now because yeah not like they're in a better situation now.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I mean, the, there's like you know you could say like two weeks of protests caused the governor to step down. But there's also, you know, what happened that day and the kind of thing that's very, um, in my opinion, amazing uh, that they, they preceded, his, immediately preceded his his stepping down was uh, uh, queer activists and feminist activists had called a pejreo uh, combativa uh, to take place at uh in front of the cathedral in old San Juan, which, which is which is what what is that? So it's kind of like a a uh a, a reggaeton dance so kind of like getting down, dancing, dancing, you know, clothes, body to body, dirty, sensual, uh, in front of the cathedral. And it was this moment that was really amazing because it was um this moment where queer you queer young people, uh you know, feminist organizers, black organizers came together and this moment of enjoyment right and like saying um you know we want this this governor to step down we want things to change but the way that this governor has you know tried to erase our bodies right um through these um, not responding to the, the high rates of gender-based violence through backing the Christian right in Puerto Rico, through um, not doing separation between um, state and church, right, that these these policies have tried to wipe us off the map. And so we're going to be here and we're going to be here enjoying each other and in community and enjoying our bodies. And so the joke was, you know, two weeks of protest, Rocio doesn't do anything but one perreo combativo and he's out of office. right And so people, you know, would joke like reggaeton is what got him to, to, to step down or the pehreo one and things like that. And, you know, I think that people say that, you know, tongue in cheek, but there's a way in which um, what, what we saw was really this, this sea change of a different mode of doing politics, a different way of protesting and different folks being at the forefront. So Black organizers, feminist organizers, queer organizers really being the driving force behind those protests
2: it's It's amazing. Um, okay, so so then he steps down and and <laughs> kind
1: of chaos ensued
2: afterwards the leadership. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's kind of like there was like musical it's chairs, the constitutional <laughs> crisis. Right. So like the, yeah. top, was the top two had to were out and they're like, wait, who's next in line? And Yeah. Like, so he tries to appoint. So the current governor, uh, Pierluisi, uh, he gets appointed and it's a it's it's deemed unconstitutional, his appointment. And so it ends up being one of the Vasquez who had been secretary of justice at the time. And so she takes over the governorship. And there's a you know, people were like, don't get comfortable, you know, and. protests continued like so people were like don't even bother unpacking your bags like uh, all of this kind of stuff were the refrains and you know she ends up staying and serving out the rest of her kind of interim term um but really what we saw was a kind of um she's she ends up being governor when there is this massive a set of earthquakes that strike uh, Puerto Rico. And so we not only see that there's this massive disaster that happens which many people felt like she handled that crisis in much the same way that Joseyo had handled Hurricane Maria although obviously it was a much less deadly crisis. But what also happens as that those earthquakes are occurring is that there's a discovery of these massive warehouses filled with unused and expired um, disaster relief that had been sent during Hurricane Maria. And so there's this sense where it was clear to people that um, she was nothing but a continuation of, of the previous administration. She had been part of the previous administration and that she was even more intent on um, uh, using kind of disaster recovery as a mode of promoting herself and 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 the benefit of the pro-statehood party and so people took to the streets again we started to see people actually taking to the streets carrying guillotines like that they had made calling for for Wanda Vasquez's head and other heads to roll um and those were were quite you know getting, you know, a lot of people out into streets, getting people into streets night after night. But really what we saw was a shift away from the massive kind of mobilizations of the Verano Boricua towards more um, effort, like small-scale efforts at community um, control and community self-determination, right? So saying the that, govern- that this government doesn't care if we die. In fact, they're willing to hide um, desperately needed disaster relief supplies from us when, and and the people are caravanning from all around to go down to the South where the earthquakes have, had struck to bring those necessary supplies when they're sitting in a, in a warehouse less than a mile away, right? And so, you know, what we started to see was a lot of emphasis on um, community self-determination, community organizing, um, and really the sense of in, um, local empowerment, right? So taking um, over abandoned schools that have been closed down as a result of the debt crisis, taking those under community control um, lots of community health um, initiatives and also local kind of food pantries and kitchens and things like that to really make sure that people have what they need because it's clear that the government is not not willing to provide it
2: i'm I'm glad that you mentioned the schools because uh we haven't even mentioned that the secretary of education (laughs) is is probably going to jail uh she was indicted uh, julia kelleher and for for many reasons but um shutting down how many, I think it was like 300 schools or a third yes,
1: of schools more. at the end of the day. Yeah. So, um, more than 200 schools were closed. And then there was also attempts to impose charters right. on, on, um, to, to take over. Right. So there was this massive privatization of Um, lower education, so like K through 12, but at the same time, we are seeing a massive disinvestment uh, at the University of Puerto Rico system. So recently, um, the uh, University of Puerto Rico's uh neuromedicine uh division lost accreditation, right? And the reason why it lost that accreditation was because of these austerity cuts happening. They could not maintain what they needed to keep their accreditation. And so you know this create this this austerity really creates a, a ripple domino effect where um you know, the austerity happens, you, ca- you lose accreditation at the school, this compounds, um, or at the medical school, this compounds already a crisis where doctors and nurses are leaving because of both the unfair distribution of federal resources for things like Medicaid and um, CHIP and things like that. Um, and leaving to the U.S., right? So we're seeing this kind of um, way in which austerity is compounding these existing crises. So there's a situation right now where Puerto Ricans are mobilizing because there's not a hospital in Vieques, right? Um, there's a way in which that's been- Vieques is an
2: island off off the coast of Puerto Rico, it's part of Puerto Rico.
1: right right it's an island municipality and so viecas has been without a hospital um people frequently die because of their inability to get to the main island in order to seek urgent medical attention and there's a way in which that has to do with viecas's marginalized status within the larger puerto rican archipelago as an island municipality you know Viequeses refer to themselves as the colony within the colony and so there's that at work but we also see that that's an effect of um austerity and the failed disaster relief right so puerto Rico. Puerto um, Viecas was supposed to get a hospital following Hurricane Maria as part of the relief package and you know the massive kind of red tape and politics have kept that from happening right at the same time that there's all of these attempts to actually build up um, kind of resorts and you know things that are not oh the tourism the today the, yeah. the, the, the Wall Street <laughs> Journal's article about Puerto Rico is the best place for tourism 12,000
2: tourists are coming in yes. a day I, I took yeah. a flight, and it was like I was taking a flight from New York to Paris. It was like one of those double deckers, like
1: <laughs> from my. Eye. I'm sorry. Just as a side yeah. note, that's it's no, it's, it's totally. horrifying. Well, yeah. and I, that's that's the problem, right? So we have now this COVID crisis happening where Puerto Rico is is now red, the entire archipelago, in kind of the highest alert. The CDC is is a- saying do not travel to Puerto Rico. At the same time that we have um, massive, uh, you know, cu- uh, price cuts, right, with the airlines in terms of tickets, the hotels also trying to re- reboot, kind of. Um, the hit that the tourism sector had taken as a result of um, COVID. And then, um, you know, this kind of really intense um, crisis between tourists and locals, right? Where tourists are coming, and seemingly given free reign to do whatever they want, while to- while locals are under an intense curfew, are um, experiencing intense criminalization for you know being in open air and not wearing a mask, right? Where we're seeing a lot of police intervention and criminalization of locals. So it's this crisis moment where you know that's already bad enough, but then you're like, some places don't have hospitals. There are not enough. There's no pediatric surgeon, right? Like there's there's not enough. Medical infrastructure to deal with that, and that goes back to the previous Rosario administration, right? With his dad privatizing um, the the medical infrastructure in Puerto Rico, but it's been compounded by the effects of this austerity over the past decade or, or longer. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned
2: this juxtaposition between the tourism and and uh, and and basically how locals are treated. I've I've seen the buses, the police buses, on, on the street. Um, you know, policing people for not wearing masks. COVID uh, tests are very hard to come by. Vaccines, haha, good luck. Um, it's it's and it's much worse in Vieques as you mentioned. But you started off this conversation saying they don't want they meaning the U.S. does not. They don't want Puerto Ricans on the island. What do you mean by that? In juxtaposition to this this tourism conversation.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, they go hand in hand and that's really what came up during the protests of the Verano Boricua was this feeling that what, you know, the the play, the title is like a play on words, right? But it's this idea that what these policies do is try to deaden, right? So they not only like literally kill people, but they really try to deaden Um, the the archipelago in a way, right? They try to make it a place that is not for Puerto Ricans. And that's really, if you talk to folks, the sense that they have is that this is, um, they're being displaced, right? There, be, there, there are incentives that are there that are meant to um, attract folks from um, the U.S. and other international contexts, right? That Puerto Ricans themselves don't have access to. So there's a way in which, you know, you talk to many young people, but even, you know, th- th- more generally, just Puerto Ricans that are living in the archipelago are recent folks to the diaspora. And there's a sense that it's like, they want a Puerto Rico without Puerto Ricans. And it's, you know, especially poignant because one of the texts in the chat that is really infamous is, I, I forget if it's like Edwin Miranda, he, he's like ventriloquizing Trump and he's like, oh, I saw the future um, of Puerto Rico and there was no Puerto Ricans and it was wonderful, right? And, and this, this way in which there is a sense that there is an attempt to get rid of Puerto Ricans and or to make life so unlivable that people just move to the U.S. And so there's this, you know, attempt to I think create this, um, you know, utopia that's accessible to everyone but Puerto Ricans, and so that's that's what the title is is referring to. And it's, I mean, it's it it goes back; it's
2: a callback also to just the 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 U.S. government's role. You know, at a time when people were <laughs> overly uh, and openly writing letters that were racist and in the public. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. th- th- seventy years ago, there were uh, members of the administration, ambassadors, or not ambassadors. Um, what were they uh, at the time? Uh, the appointees to the F- to, mm-hmm. under FDR who were white and here and saying horrible racist things about the people of Puerto Rico. Doctors who were testing on, on mm-hmm. women um, and everybody, but. Uh, blatantly racist and so there is this this you'd think that they would have sharpened up but um under trump clearly not dr marisol lebron thank you for joining us this was a really interesting conversation i love it i'd uh, love to have you back on <laughs> anytime yeah definitely thank you for having me this was
1: wonderful take care thank you so much you too take care the no Mickey Show. The no Mickey Show.
0: Well,
2: today is the day that we can finally say that we have a special announcement.
0: <laughs> we do.
2: Look at you. Your hair's looking even better than yesterday. Uh, <laughs> just whipping in the wind. A Chowdhury, contributor to The Nomiki Show on Thursdays, political filmmaker, uh, formerly first official White House videoga- videographer under... President Barack Obama and was the creative director for the Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign, does a lot of international work. But now we can call him the host of Bump da Bump. I don't have like shofars and all these things that Sam Cedar has. So let's just pretend that that's there. We can add it later. The committee program with Arun Chowdhury, which is going to air right here.
0: Here. That's right. On Mondays
2: right on at 3 p.m. Arun, what is this? Explain this graphic. This is, I love it.
0: Look, I mean, we uh, immediately, I think when you and I were talking, we're like, it's nice when you come on the show. It's good when I can talk to you about international issues. Uh, and just talking about how the progressive American audience doesn't necessarily have uh, a lot of information coming in from the rest of the world, especially uh, from their brother and sister uh, parties all on the center left and left all over the place. And so I think we're hoping to really give an interesting perspective on the growing solidarity that we hope to see and help and blossom uh, across the Atlantic, across all the oceans, because let's be absolutely clear, there is a community of right-wing parties. They do exchange techniques, they do exchange money, they do talk to each other, they do have a project. And on the left, we have our factions and we have our satisfaction with being right. Uh, And I don't know that we always Put it all together internationally the way that we should and I think the other thing that'll be interesting you know I think our show will be familiar to anyone who watches any show you know guests and facts and things and learnings but I think we're also going to be telling things from a practitioner's perspective so getting a lot of filmmakers artists people who make things in politics to talk about uh the nitty-gritty of how they're actually made and uh unlike your show we will be crunching lots of different segments together into one program that we'll put out weekly and it should be a lot of fun. I'm really excited to get started. We're
2: super excited. I mean, this is um you know, we have all these conversations just offline like i'll I'll say, you know what's what's happening in Greece? what's happening? You'll be working in Italy, and you're telling me about an amazing leftist woman candidate who's running, and she's like the a o c of Italy and
0: uh, Tironi, uh, yeah, we have to have her on. She's now uh the head of the young Democrats,
2: which is has a different definition here, right um so so yeah. so. so you know, and, 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 putting that up against like the organizing, the far right organizing and the different factions of the far right in Italy and how, when you say there's an international network, I mean, Steve Bannon had a monastery in Italy that he was like recruiting people to run in totally. the new elections. And these are conversations, maybe they get touched on really briefly or you read about it in Jacobin, but you want to really bring out the context and deepen it. And it's, it's not just an audience in the U S I mean, people from all over the world can, can tap in and, um, and this is a space, but uh, can you give us a little bit of a, of, of a, preview of the first episode oh, what you're we'll expecting on may
0: 3rd right yeah 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 yes. so the you know, may 3rd the first episode uh the first may one may 3rd we will
2: be may 3rd just for folks to may be very 3rd. clear may 3rd is the first episode all right we'll be promoting is the it
0: first episode not may 1st is the third episode you could, conf- <laughs> I could you could conflate those things very easily i can yeah. see how that could happen <laughs> uh no we're gonna do a lot of cool things we're actually gonna have a conversation um about cinque Stella, who are a sort of hybrid right left party that spectacularly rose to power mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s and has spectacularly this last week kind of faded finally off the map after I think what many folks thought was interesting, uh, either an interesting red-green alliance, you know, between environmentalists and people who are anti-establishment and pro-equality, or a very scary red-brown alliance in which you do have, uh, you know, people asking for a minimum wage, you maybe aren't crazy about immigration, etc. So we're really going to plumb to the bottom of that. Uh, Then we'll have an even more fun segment uh, where people are calling in. We have some kids calling in from Holland and from New York City uh, who have campaign problems and we will help them solve their campaign problems. They're running for things. That's going to be a campaign makeover. Uh, And then we will delve into some of what's happening in Brazil right now. I think a lot of times, again, from American perspective, we're like, oh, they got a Trumpy guy down there and I think COVID's bad. And we don't realize sort of uh, the really idiosyncratic ways in which Latin America has evolved to where it is now. And so we'll be talking about uh, Brazil, about Lula maybe running again, uh, about Bolsonaro and just if Trump wants to be loved, we're not exactly sure what Bolsonaro wants. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> like, trying to
2: bribe, uh, or not bribe. He's trying to blackmail the U.S. government into paying them so that they don't rip apart the rainforest oh. and the ecosystem of the United of the the entire world. It's it's very clever for a right wing fascist.
0: You know, what me- <laughs> is I think So many fascists are driven by narcissism. I think is, yeah. is is what I'm thinking, and it doesn't seem like it with him. He's driven by the pure evil of it. Yeah, and that's yeah. different. That's a little special in its own horrible way, and we'll be talking uh, about that. Uh, what else we have planned? I think we're going to talk about the coolest and, shop effect. We're going to do. how long is the
2: show? Effect. How long is the show?
0: It's three hours long.
2: So, guys, you ready for this? It's three hours long. Ours is one hour. A run is doing a three-hour show, getting you everything in one show, jam-packed. And we'll, we'll we'll splice and dice it throughout the week so people can catch Yeah, those. yeah,
0: yeah. We'll slice and dice it throughout the week. Uh, but those of you who like a nice big sit-down sitting, you'll have a big helping on Monday afternoons. It'll
2: be fantastic. Um, all right. Well, we're going to continue to promo. You're going to come on again, and we'll have a deeper conversation about the upcoming episodes, so sh- show some uh, previews. But... Let's talk about today, because <laughs> we got some news here. I think we're still waiting for Rep. Rab. Rep. Rab is always like, you know, running around voting for things and like running out of know. You know, being the state house, being a legislator, running out of the state house. And you're like, I can't do a political show on the state house. And he has to like run outside. And he's... so we'll give him a second. Um, hopefully he can make it today. But it's OK. So because... The closest
0: place in the White House to the West Wing that the president can make political calls from is actually the doctor's office, because that's technically part of a residence. <laughs> So often uh, you'll see a stickler president like Barack Obama, who likes to follow the rules, sort of dash off down the colonnade quickly to the doctor's office and sit like in the doctor's chair and like, you know, call a millionaire.
2: Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump was having public events, you know, campaign events in the Rose Garden. So totally fine. No big deal. And nothing happened, by the way. Nothing nothing happened. happened. Okay, so we have um, a couple of, of things that have just uh, happened uh, in the last few minutes. Senator Schumer, this is just broken um Ryan Grimm from The Intercept, uh, the Washington bureau chief of The Intercept, has has tweeted out a video of Senator Schumer. Now, let's just remind folks, Senator Schumer is the majority leader of the Senate. Senator Schumer has been in office, I think, since his late 20s. He was maybe even early 30s in Congress. Uh, he was a he is a very good politician, as much as people like to criticize Wall Street, Chuck uh, you're from New York. You you have a, a sense of this as well. Yeah,
0: out Al D'Amato was no joke. That was a real insurgent like, like thing, you know?
2: Okay, let, let's, let's touch on that before we play this ad. What did Al D'Amato, Senator Al D'Amato, represent? I mean, we're kids of the 90s. What was what was he indicative of? I mean, this is, this is a different New York state. People are like, oh, New York's blue, but Al D'Amato.
1: Oh,
0: I mean, no, he was that absolute consummate Long Island, moderate Republican, like you could set your watch by like, he was that guy, like a hundred percent. And then, uh, and I think it was the sort of, it's the turning of the New York suburbs uh, that you can kind of see with the, with the entry of Chuck Schumer, kind of that slight flip over.
2: Brooklyn Chuck. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I remember Wayne Barrett, and these are Wayne Barrett's w- words, so please, like, don't throw them at me. I don't want to get some comments. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wayne Barrett, the probably one of the most famous investigative reporters of, of all time, but definitely in New York, uh, he had investigated all these people. He, you know, Some people ended up in jail because of his investigations. He wrote a beautiful book, a great book called City for Sale um, on New York City and, and the Koch administration, just sort of how... They made they they put the city for sale um, and and, you know, folks like Alessandro Biagi's grandfather, who's a very different person, were highlighted in that book because he was part of a corruption scheme and ended up in jail. It's just a crazy time period in New York that really never ended. But Wayne Barrett used to say, and he was don't forget, Wayne Barrett's the first person to report on Trump. The two most corrupt people in New York state are the two Al's, Al D'Amato and Al Sharpton.
0: whoa. That he would say that
2: over and over. But he also did a huge expose on Al Sharpton, and it was a different era. It was before MSNBC Al Sharpton. No, no, no.
0: Believe me, I remember Al Sharpton, late 80s, early 90s Al Sharpton. Yeah, Yeah, sure. yeah,
2: yeah. Okay, so let's play this clip of uh, Senator Schumer, who is not running for office right now, guys. Just want to remind you all, Senator Schumer is not running for office.
0: Saturdays, I'm in New York. I ride my bike along the Brooklyn Waterfront. (laughs) I'm not a spandex guy. I'm not going at 40 miles an hour. I ride slowly. I take in the beauty of Brooklyn, and I wonder if this waterfront will be around as my little grandson grows up. If we don't take bold action on climate change now, it's going to change the shape of our city for the worse. We don't have any time to waste. With Democrats in charge, the Senate is treating climate change like the crisis it is. And I'll fight for our future.
2: (laughs) I can't even... I'm sorry. All right, you're a professional ad man. When is Let's his break this down? And never. Never. He is not getting challenged by anybody named AOC because it's that would be like, the stupidest look, move.
0: For, like what? I hate saying this cuz like, you know, oftentimes we say the same things because they're true and hopefully that's helpful to hear those things repeated. And one of those that I certainly say on your show all the time is that we need to tell stories outside of elections and constantly be doing that. It's not just about elections, it's about constantly telling, but this this ain't it. This I mean, you know, it doesn't like I, I do understand the impulse to want to be seen uh, in an era where it's harder to be seen, to be seen on the side of an issue, that he has decided it is important that he fight for politically. We can be cynically about how much. You know, he's triangulating on that and how much he is not. But the point of it is is that engaging in politics outside of politics gives you the non politics bump. This is just the most overcut, horrible, hackneyed political ad. Makes him look weak and weird.
2: Yeah. The spandex line. The spandex line was very strange. I think if I were going to cut an ad, in
0: all the wrong places while he's talking about the spandex, which okay,
2: let's let's play a game called let's pitch an ad to the Schumer campaign, campaign, Um, and and like thirty second ad. I have mine, if and I'll give you a second to think. Mine's very simple. So Senator Schumer, let's let's not forget wins overwhelmingly right who is his base that he's trying to win over right now like it's always you know you're sitting there and it's like well what what is the point of this is is there is he losing a little bit of a base is he trying to prevent somebody from running to the left obviously this happened on um they they released this on earth day you know he's for the environment whatever like but who is his base and my theory is he's got to keep the white ladies happy the white ladies the
0: suburban white ladies
2: suburban white ladies, the Upper West Side white ladies, the Move On white ladies, the Brooklyn white ladies. But the Buffalo ladies. white
0: ladies. They don't give a shit about this act.
2: No, those are Trumpsters. As I say, I grew up in Buffalo. I can say it. Okay, guys? I don't want to hear your effing shit. <laughs> like,
1: <laughs>
2: I grew up as a white lady in Buffalo. I know the white ladies of Buffalo. They all got the Karen haircuts still, and they drink um, uh, whatever that drink was they drank during Sex and the City 20 years ago, still to this day. Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. Like the Chocolatini or something. So, all right. This is my ad senator schumer is known for being a matchmaker he has literally I, there's been multiple articles about his matchmaking like people in his senate many people in his senate office have gotten married because he has matchmaked them and outside that's literally the ad matchmaker chuck walking around and one time i walked down the street at the dnc and he walked by and 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 full disclosure i was 16 i interned for him and i was like senator schumer no cons from buffalo <laughs> When are you going to find me a boyfriend?
0: <laughs> oh, my God. And he pulled me aside.
2: Speaker. And he goes, wait, let's talk about this. I said, well, I was your intern. And I feel like I was really, you know, I mean, I, granted, I was underage. But I feel like I didn't get the full internship experience.
0: And he's oh like, hang on,
2: hang on. We got to figure this out. And Of course, nothing came about. He, he told me to talk to somebody. But it was like a classic Chuck Schumer move. You know, that's how he's. But it shows, as much as we're joking, about, it, it shows he's good with people. It shows and you it's self deprecating
0: in a sort of comfortable New Yorkish way. That's good. Uh, my that's ad also plays on that,
1: which okay. is famously
0: the most dangerous place uh in, in Washington is between Chuck Schumer and a camera. He's never seen everyone a knows that. Like. Yeah, Yeah. I will even tell you, uh, I remember once filming in uh, Albany and you know, the senators uh, often will come along with the president when he visits, uh, you know, we were at the uh, GE plant, they make propellers or something. And, uh, (laughs) and Chuck Schumer actually was at the beginning and end of the rope line. He ran around (laughs) because I was filming the whole rope line to put in West Wing week and I was like, and there's Chuck Schumer again. <laughs> uh, so mine is, Great. he's like that. He's like, look, everybody knows, you know, uh, I like cameras and, you know, and I'm getting ready now to like, you can be seeing a lot of me because we're going to be talking about climate change. And he's having this sort of, you know, bullshit earnest speech about it. But, but we see him preparing for all these different media appearances and gradually water starts filling in all of them. So, like oh, he's in his bathroom and there's water and there's a, because it's really important. And, you know, the Senate, the Senate is famously slow moving, but if we don't get started now. And then finally, he's doing a press conference in uh, the scuba gear. Genius. The, the whole thing. So
2: genius. See, you, you stuck with the theme. I Mine want is to expensive.
0: Mine there's, is expensive.
2: expensive. It, it is a, expensive. like
0: water world. It's like, yeah.
2: <laughs> like it's <laughs> You're cute. like James Cameron. Remember what you did in, in uh, Mexico when you filmed the Titanic? Titanic. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah.
0: going to need that soundstage.
2: <laughs> I'm going to guess that if anybody can find the money for that ad, it is Chuck Schumer. That's true. Now, if you were going to do a hit piece on a hit ad on Chuck Schumer, negative ad, if you were running to the left of Chuck Schumer, I mean, there's so much, but what would you go with?
0: I would take this ad and recut it, which is easy because it's so cutty already, uh, with like this Larry one. Davidish, well, yeah, with like Larry Davidish music, and just be like, not good enough because that's <laughs> sort of the energy that this ad puts out, right? It's like I'm a little too schlubby for pull this yeah. off. I'm a little too this. I'm a little too that, and just be like, that's sweet, Chuck. Not good enough.
2: I think I would just make it really simple and say, um, he likes to say he's you know this tough guy from new york he likes to say that he understands uh you know power and he's progressive why can't you stand up to joe manchin chuck why can't you stand Ooh, up to kirsten how- cinema chuck who's really holding things up now chuck what kind of leader are you like make him look weak make him look like he doesn't have the uh, what cojones. kind of leader
0: are you and we can see like the this and like joe manchin yeah, you yeah. know just a slow motion where he seems smug because it's slow motion can't yeah, keep your, not your house in order
2: senate in order and then, like, just have him juxtaposed with like Nancy Pelosi by an ice cream truck or something. One of those, the, I don't know. He needs his ice cream moment. And that's, you he is can't smart. solve a
0: problem like Joe Manchin. He can't solve a problem like climate change.
2: Perfect. Perfect. That's it. Dorsey thinks this ad looks like a Viagra commercial. It probably yeah,
0: was. Because it's so cutty. It's strange. Like, how many shots are in it, which must mean that the, and the reason you do that is when your shots aren't good. So it must have sort of been awkward and bad.
2: Is that really what it is? Is that a secret that we don't know about in the
0: ad I world? I think that this was, I mean, I think the fact that this is so, Yeah, k- 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 means that like shooting didn't go that smoothly.
2: Interesting. Um, okay, so we've talked enough about uh, uh, Chuck Schumer. Rep. Rab is having internet issues because he's probably across the street. But I do want to, um, before we run, I, I, I do want to touch on uh, <laughs> this postal service story because it kind of, Freaks me out, you know. As we're sitting here um, defending the postal service and the postal workers, and 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 the union is a, a great union. Simultaneously, right. there's this story that breaks saying that the postal service is covertly co- collecting data on people's social media posts. Now, like, okay, what does that mean? Well, it turns out there's an arm of the postal service, of course, right? This is classic America. The postal police. The Postal Police. Did you know about them? Did you know yeah, that there's a lot of enforcement them. I don't know
0: what they do, but no, no, you see them in DC every now and then, like in a car. They have like two cars, you know? They have two
2: cars, you said?
0: Yeah, like like you'll see like a car that's marked like the postal police hanging out outside like the postal like service headquarters or whatever, and you're like, whoa, they have their own police force.
2: So I'm curious, and I, I don't know enough about this, and I guess we'll just have to look into it, if the postal police are it's a different union from the regular postal workers and Uh if they're part of the police union, because this is insane. And I I mean, I'm not really sure how this is even um, legal or what what it falls under, but the details of the surveillance effort, this is in Yahoo News, known as ICOP, literally can't make this up, internet covert operations program. uh, They have not been made public, right? But they're trolling through social media sites to look for what they deem as inflammatory. And this is including uh, planned protests that are happening, uh, you know, especially internationally and domestic. I mean, I'm very curious. Like, is this, they say that they're looking at Parler, and of course, Parler is back on Apple. I don't know if you guys know, but it's back on iTunes. Um, oh, Parler's back. <laughs> Parler
1: is
2: back. Parler's Welcome back. Welcome back, back. Parler is back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Yes. And Glenn Greenwald, of course, in, in, in uh, opportune time says.
0: Exotic fashion.
2: Yes. Just, you know, these are the issues that we have to prioritize defending par- parlor. There are a lot of problems in this country, guys. A lot that do, by the way, uh, impede on free speech and civil rights. I'm going to say parlor defense is probably not the most important one to, to go and put your energy into. But, I mean, what's your take on this? What uh, This is the Biden administration. Uh,
0: I mean, are they my, just my becoming sneakier? It is, is evolving as we speak. Number one, like... Yeah, Democrats love spending money on needless surveillance stuff. So I don't like them sort of, you know, getting wind of this program or or using it, any of those things. I don't think it matters who is in office. We have a national security state that, you know, knows no bounds. But coincidentally, and it's only been a quick Google search, it seems like this division of the Postal Service was formed, interestingly, in 1971, probably at the height of Pro you know uh stuff and people worrying about vietnam records uh you know besides civil rights activists I and mean, they say nothing of that so i do think that this is one of those things that was birthed with a nefarious uh notion in mind and i would challenge anyone to say what we do need these things for right you know also, like instead mean, of were saying, they
2: going through your mail that's the other like back then like,
0: it uh, certainly sounds what like it. It sounds like going uh-huh. through your mail. And that is just one of those basic things in America that you don't have to dig down too far for people to be like, hey, that seems wrong. Like, I'm not into that.
2: Unreal. Unbelievable. Um, well, I can't wait for Josh Hawley to take
0: it on. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm the sure champion, that's happen.
2: champion of civil rights. Arun Chowdhury, host of The Committee. The committee excited about this. It airs yeah, when's the first good. the first episode's on um May third, three
0: PM Eastern Time.
2: May 3rd, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Of course, uh you will be on the week before to promote it more. We'll do some teasers because mm-hmm. you're gonna pre-tape some of this stuff. And I'm really excited also because it's right after May Day. So I'm sure there's gonna be elements of of that as well. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Or Labor Day as we call it in Europe. We don't play that nonsense making up a fake Labor Day to defang the whole thing, you
2: know? We do too here, guys. Just to remind everybody, you are in Berlin. So that's that's another aspect that's yes. pretty powerful. run, always a pleasure. We will see you next week. And uh, in the meantime, just set your clocks because we're going to have a Monday show, guys. I know a lot of you complain that there's nothing on Monday. Well, guess what? We've been working on this. It's been a secret. Ding, ding, boom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone, take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Okay, who do we have some shout-outs for? I'm sorry. I keep forgetting to remind everybody. um, We check out the Super Chats at the end. I'm so bad at this, but definitely in the future, uh, we run through the Super Chats at the the end. Some people mention why we don't jerk during the show. Um, Just, you know... I'm not that great at it, let's just be honest. I, can't, I don't check the chat as often as I'd like. Um, all right, so there are, oh, this is interesting, interesting turn of events. We've got some Andrew Yang people who really wanna get my attention. Listen, if you want me, if you want me to be saying pro-Andrew Yang things on air, then send us that Andrew Yang money. We know he's got it. <laughs> Okay, so Abdul Anas says Andrew Yang will be the Democratic nominee for mayor of New York City. I don't know about that yet. I think there's there's some machinations happening behind the scenes, which um, I also don't agree with. But, like, there's some stuff happening. Well, we're going to do a couple of specials on the mayoral election. People are asking. I believe in doing the most... Um, detailed thoughtful show as possible on the election and now as we're seeing uh different alliances like this is a, a a ranked choice election for mayor um as we're seeing new polls come out you know 50 percent of new yorkers that are likely voters are still undecided it's ranked choice uh some of the polling doesn't even indicate how people would vote uh in the ranked choice it's more just who your first choices are so um we're gonna to touch on this a bunch. I know not everybody's from New York, but it obviously has uh, deep implications and it's the only campaign in town right now. Um, so, and it's Andrew Yang, it's just fun. It's a lot of fun. There's other folks too that are, are fun to talk about um, if you're a New Yorker, but I don't know if everybody else finds it as interesting as I do. So we will do a couple of specials. We promise to give you a heads up. The election is in two months, um, just a little bit over two months. So we have a little bit of time, but we're definitely gonna do a few specials on, on the mayoral race. And for those of you who keep harassing me, I am not endorsing anybody. I think I've decided I am not endorsing anybody. Um, I'm just not in love with any of the candidates. I know Dorsey is. Dorsey, do, do you want to come on camera and talk about who you're voting for? You don't have to. You can do sound if you want. Definitely not yet. <laughs> oh, you're not ready to endorse your no, the no, candidate.
0: No, I'm not. I'm not ready to endorse, but I'm leaning towards somebody with a more managerial attitude. <laughs> Put it that way.
2: That is now you're leaving people on the edge of their seats because they're gonna think, what are you gonna like vote for Ray McGuire from Citibank, or is it gonna be some other? I think you guys are gonna be really surprised by who he's leaning towards because I thought it was
0: brilliant. We got a lot of time left, so I'm not you know okay. I'm gonna I, we'll wait until uh, you know, I mean there's the NBA playoffs are coming up soon, and the uh, the New York mayor's race are it's coming up, so it's kind of like um you yeah. know, nothing's quite settled on either one of them, so I'm hedging gonna,
2: I'm gonna... your butts, yeah. 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 I'm a free
0: agent. I'm a free agent on, all, free- on all fronts.
2: <laughs> we can't forget last time. I mean, there were uh, Anthony Weiner was in the race and then that thing blew up. And then that kind of created an opening for Bill de Blasio. And then he had his amazing tale of two cities ad um, done by, uh, you know, my friend Bill Hires, who does great ad work. Um, he did Randy Bryce's ads and he's he. Yeah, it was just so things happen. And that that like we were in a completely different place two months ago, so maybe two months before the election last time. Maybe what we'll do is we'll talk about, OK, at this stage in the last mayoral election, at least the last big one, where where were we? What were the dynamics um, granted, ranked choice voting did not exist then. So. Anywho, all right, Prairie Fire Kowalski sends his love. Thank you, Prairie Fire Kowalski, as always. And J.K.R. Dozer, also, thank you for the love and the super chat. Pete from Oakland says, oh, God, you want me to speak Spanish? Okay. Tienes que visitar barranquitas durante tus viajes en Puerto Rico. Las vistas por las montañas son indescribable. Okay, thank you, Pete from Oakland. I will go to Barranquitas. I think I've actually been to Barranquitas. I'm not sure, just check it out, but thank you. Oh no, is there more Spanish? No, okay. (laughs) He sent another super chat. I was like, don't put me on the spot. I had dinner with someone yesterday and sometimes I get nervous speaking other languages in front of people who are natives, not always also give me more alcohol and I am great. But I, if, if, if I have no choice, like when I was Guatemala, I had to speak Spanish. Like I went with, I think I talked about Cesar and he didn't speak any English. And so it forced me. And I was like, I am so much better at Spanish than I think. Maybe it's because I never want to speak in front of people who also speak English. So thank you, Pete, for pushing me. Um, He also says regarding the book club, I'm still waiting to receive my first book. Huh. Okay, let's go investigate that. I'm sorry, Pete. We will check that out and figure out what's happening. Because um, we are, we have some, the, the, we work with the publishers. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out what's happening. A, I apologize for that. But uh, you'll get it. No matter what, you will get the books. <laughs> you just might get like 30 of them at once. <laughs> Ian Kinzel, sorry, Andrew Yang people. If you want to hear nice things, you have to outbid me first. Come on, see some, come on, somebody send $10. I love that. Can we do a bidding more? The debates, oh, I love this. I'll just debate the chats. Kowalski from Nebraska says, so I'm posting farm stuff short videos from my, YouTube, from my YouTube channel, hoping to post videos daily to show what modern agriculture looks like. We'll eventually do longer stuff soon. Left is best. That's really cool. Especially with our um, uh, Sunset Lake CBD, you know, they creating sustainable agriculture as a small farm. They're, you know, the the, the company is owned by the workers. They're paying uh, livable wages, $15 an hour. Uh, they invest in and in, in left to shows. So I think that's a very cool, um, yeah, it's a nice strategy. All right, everybody, uh, all of our moderators and shout outs, let's do this. We've got Docs, Mario C., and everyone else who's in there working those algorithms. Thank you to our YouTube mods, Bob C., Choke and the Orb, and Chuck Diesel. Again, the trolls were out. So thank you for getting us through it. Are they mainly Yang trolls? Are they like crypto trolls? I'm really curious. Um, are they FTV trolls? Are they Joe Rogan trolls? I'm just thinking of all the people who don't like me. Um, you know, we don't get Hillary Clinton trolls. That They have not invaded, as far as I know, they're not on YouTube. Thank you to Dorian Sapiens and Difficult Truth, Nug Wrangler, and Our Means on Twitch for keeping our live chats chill nice and chill we will see you tomorrow tomorrow is fem friday right here we're gonna do a special little uh uh segment on kirsten cinema it's gonna be hot you guys have been asking for it and we're doing it we are doing it so you definitely want to check us out tomorrow 3 p.m eastern on twitch on youtube and of course to all of our patrons we love you you are what make this show spirited and alive and of course our super chats as well we will see you tomorrow stay in solidarity